0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense i'm john wiener later in the show our christmas show bob dylan's christmas album it's left bob dylan fans puzzled and troubled ever since he released it in 2009 to help figure out what Dylan was doing, we turn to Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official website, bobdylan.com. He also teaches American history at Princeton. But first, striking grad students at the University of California are voting this week on a contract offer after a five-week strike. Nelson Lichtenstein has our analysis in a minute.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make?
0: The biggest strike in the country this year and the biggest in the history of American universities may be over. After five weeks of picketing and protests, the union representing 48,000 grad student employees at the University of California announced a settlement offer by the university and members are voting this week. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he heads the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Dissent, and The Guardian. We reached him today once again in Santa Barbara, Nelson Lichtenstein. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, the university is offering salary boosts of something like 55% to the lowest paid teaching assistants who currently get about $23,000 in an academic year. This is over the next two and a half years. And there's more money for TAs at Berkeley and UCLA. And everybody would receive increases in health and child care benefits. What do you think of this offer?
2: Well, there's no doubt this is a, a major victory for graduate students, t- teaching assistants, and really for, for low wage workers across the country. And, and you know, while there's some, some dissension about it, increasing wages in two and a half years by 50%, or actually more for many of them. Uh, is really uh, dramatic. I mean, in the recent rail strike, you know, oh, 25% wage increase, you know, and, and then you see other places, you know, oh, we're giving 10% over a few, you know, here it's 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 dramatic and it's, it's more than inflation. And I think, and it came after a, a very hard fought strike, uh, one which became increasingly political. It forced the governor and the, you know, the president of the university to directly intervene. They had to get a mediator. So I think this demonstrated that dramatic change can take place, you know, in this in this moment. So I think we should. I think that that this wage increase is it's a qualitative increase. It's not just a sort of incremental. It's a qualitative increase. I think that's very important.
0: So let's look at some of the details here. The agreement would raise the minimum pay from this twenty three thousand to about thirty four thousand. This is for nine months of part time work by right. the fall term of twenty twenty four, and at Berkeley and UCLA in San Francisco, they would get 36,500. There's also a separate offer to graduate student researchers would make a minimum of 35,000 for 50% time work by October, 2024 and uh childcare reimbursement would be set at $1350 per quarter plus the same amount for the summer and UC said it would pay 100% of health insurance for the children of mm-hmm. eligible student workers and they would increase pay for family leave nevertheless the headline in the LA times a couple of days ago was dissension brews among striking UC union members over tentative agreement. So we need to also look at some of the problem areas that the opponents of a yes vote have raised. First, they say the money doesn't come until the second and third years and students need the money right away. It's right away that their rent is too high. And some
2: of them won't even be TAs in in three years. One difference between the the constituency here, uh... Graduate student teaching assistants, uh, you know, is that they are here just probably six years or something like that, seven years, and then they're in theory they're either gone. In theory, they then go off and get a better job. Uh, that's unlike, say, the old days. An auto worker was in there for thirty or forty years, and you could say, well, two years from now you'll get this exit. Well, if I'm a grad student, that's like you know a good deal of their entire time they're here. So that is an issue. Uh, but uh, they, they they do receive actually a seven and a half percent increase this year. Uh, Ninety days. After after the contract's ratified. And then in September, it's a 16%. I mean, let let me just just make one point why I think that the the political mobilization and the and the militancy of the of the workers really did pay off. Initially UC was really nickel and diming uh th- this. And for example, in the in the third in the third year, the 2024, they were offering 3.5%. You know, well you might think a victory would be would be doubling that to seven percent or so. No, no, it, it went to 16%. So I mean, so you do get, yes, it's two and a half years, two years from now, two and a half years from now. It's uh, unusual in that respect. One more thing i do want to say just in terms of what's good about it is that for many years if you were an experienced teaching assistant got no recognition of that in terms of your salary. You just got the same as when you began. And now they've instituted these these sort of steps, you know, like if you're more experienced, you get more. And so that means that that second and third year TAs or fourth year, you know, they will, they will get even more. So that's that's a good thing. And 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 so I think there's no gainsaying, no matter how critical you may be of some other parts of this contract, that it's a dramatic increase in wages now it, it was started from a low base and and you know california's expensive but but uh, you know and it may not even at the highest levels you know you're still ha- you're still struggling but nevertheless it is a dramatic increase in percentage terms
0: for a lot of the strikers there's a fairly obscure issue that was important the non-resident tuition this is out-of-state and international students have to pay a lot of money just to enroll and the union demanded the end or at least a substantial reduction in tuition for out-of-state and international students who are working as tas
2: they were forced to give this up what what's the issue here one of the great things about the University of California's uh, programs, of course, lots of international students, they don't therefore get the in-state uh, reduction in tuition. They have to pay this out-of-state tuition, out of, which is a lot. It, partly that was instituted by the legislature to, you know, to make uh, undergraduates, you know, from wealthy families pay, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of state. But anyway, so it, it catches these international students who are basically on their own. And the union did want to have a remission of these very large fees. They didn't win that. And so lots of people were pissed off about that. What they did get was to sort of make it a bargaining issue. And 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 that's sort of touted. Now we can, you know, two years from now, we can fight on that more. They made it a bargaining issue. Initially, UC said, oh, this is, you, you have nothing to do with this. This is entirely a question of, of tuition and you can't deal with this. But they, they did succeed. Now, I don't know. You may think that's pretty uh, lukewarm uh, a victory to make it a bargaining issue for, for another day. But nevertheless, uh, that's what they got. But yes. And,
0: and let me add. And the governor and the legislature do not want to give low free
2: tuition to out of state people. They're worried the taxpayers will revolt right. against that. And, well, they did win one thing. They did win that a kind of codification of an informal way of doing it that once a, a student from out of state or out of the country had achieved, uh, I think, advancing to candidacy, they would then have like three years of, of very low tuition be, while they're writing their dissertation. That was sort of codified. It had been informal beforehand. But you're right, it's a very sensitive question. i think a lot of these students from other other countries they were they were the backbone of the strike they were you know they were this was a this is an international uh uh, uh, movement movement. workers of the world unite yes that's right
0: (laughs) no the university has made a big deal out of the fact that for the first time they are providing child care payments to employees of the university critics of this say that it's totally inadequate thirteen hundred fifty dollars per quarter suppose you pay Twenty-five dollars an hour for childcare. This is going to pay for less than five hours a week, which yeah.
2: really is inadequate. Well, childcare in general is a crisis around the entire country. It's expensive, and here in particular, it's a particular problem. and They, and they won a little bit, but they did, but nothing to really help get the cost of, of full time childcare, which is enormous. And really, it really can't can't be. You know, how can you do it, juggling a baby on your lap while you're you're working and writing and are in the lab? So that yes, this is something they didn't win it, and uh, and people. More pissed about it, and uh, and rightly so. Now, I, I asked some people, how what proportion of all graduate students have have children? It's probably ten percent or maybe less. If you did have adequate childcare, well, then that would mean that you know more people would go to grad school. People who were maybe you know poor or had started a family early, and they would go. They, oh yes, I could go to grad school and get a advanced degree, and that would be a democratic egalitarian thing.
0: And then the university also made a big deal out of the fact that this is the first contract which provides for some health insurance for children now here the the fine print is pretty puzzling limited to single parents or single income households that fall above the free medical coverage threshold what does that mean
2: well right i I have to say i'm a little puzzled myself about it i think it means that uh, a a lot of people would not qualify (laughs) (laughs) basically after after this would be would be pretty small
0: this is a reference to to cal the, right. the, the state right. insurance for low-income people. Right. Right. And I think if you're a single parent, you almost automatically qualify, unless you actually have quite a good job. So they're saying those people will be covered by MediCal, not by the university. So, and there was some concern that the university would pay for all this by raising
2: tuition. What, what do we know about that? Well, the governor has said no. The governor made a statement. It's interesting. The governor did make a statement about this settlement. And he very clearly said, nope. No, this is not going to increase tuition. In fact, he made it very clear that the uh, the money for these uh, enhancements will come out of the agreement that UC signed with the with the governor and the legislature approved of, of I think, basically increasing uh, UC's uh, uh, budget by 5% for every year for the next several years. And he said what he was saying there was, look, this is important. You got to give your the grad students a higher uh, higher income. And that means you're going to have to shift some some money from somewhere else, but you aren't getting it out of tuition. He made that very clear.
0: So union members are voting this week on this contract offer. If the vote is yes, the contract says, quote, employees must return to work, close mm-hmm. quote. I mean, mm-hmm. the quarter is now over, but the fall quarter grades have not been handed in. So I assume this means the TAs are going to have to spend their Christmas vacation grading the final exams.
2: That's correct. Yes, that is true. Yes.
0: And, and if the vote is no, if the members reject the contract that the union has
2: negotiated, what happens then? Well, then you go back to the bargaining table, and and, the, and we should talk about the one major. I think I think it's the most de- divisive issue, which which is, has to do with the pay differentials, which have yes. been created by this between uh, Berkeley and UCLA versus everyone else. Which is a little bit a little mystifying how this happened because the union they wanted the housing costs to be covered, but they didn't make any demands for the increasing salary among the teaching assistants at UCLA and Berkeley, the two two really biggest campuses. That was not and this kind of came at the last minute uh and really was proposed by the the university. You know, where did that come from and what's the rationale for it? Some argue oh well more expensive to live at UCLA and Berkeley than uh, you know everywhere else but that's not the case and, you know what you know Irvine and and uh, UC and Santa Cruz and and San Diego and Santa Barbara are also very expensive that doesn't that doesn't seem to compute the other argument was well Berkeley and UCLA they've always had these things called Top ups, <laughs> top, but, ups. Top, yes, up, top ups, yes, top ups. Really heard about which, which really what, what, what is what it means? And this is true everywhere, but maybe more so at, at these universities. That department or a dean or some smaller unit, some collab would give extra money, you know, to their instructors, to their teaching assistants, or and, and they and maybe there was more of that happening at, at UCLA and Berkeley. Well. Okay, but but the, these things will continue. So Ber- Berkeley and UCLA were given $2,500 extra in salary compared to everyone else. And frankly, that's created uh, a lot of dissension. And also among the faculty, the faculty, because one of the best things about the University of California system is that there's a standards that are applied to the entire system. And this seems to be institutionalizing a difference, you know? And and so the, the faculty has a stake in this. And if it applies to grad students, then other it will apply to other things as well. So we don't want to get, start that.
0: So if the vote is no... What happens then?
2: Well, then then we, they go back they go back bargaining and the the teaching assistants who are on strike, they don't they don't hand in their grades and and some sympathetic faculty don't hand in their grades either. It continues on into the winter. Uh, that, that's what would happen. Now it, I should say it's not like a disaster if you don't hand in your grades. <laughs> you could you could do them later on, but nevertheless, it, it will it, it's disruptive. And uh, my informants tell me that it's likely that the contract will be ratified.
0: And what happens if there's a yes majority, but a substantial no vote? Uh, There's been, in the past, we've had wildcat strikes at Santa Cruz. I heard there's been wildcat strikes at San Diego, and I've heard that Santa Barbara, there's also some concern about wildcat strikes. What happens then?
2: potentially uh it would involve uh issues of disciplinary action which did happen two years ago or two and a half years ago at at, at uc santa cruz
0: disciplinary action means
2: firing the the tas yes. who continue to strike right and they, and they were and they were fired for for they lost a quarter of employment or something like that then they were they were reinstated but their wildcat at santa cruz actually in the end, kind of not one exactly, but cl- close to it, they, they received a, uh, a $2,500 a year to all grad students there to, to make up for the high cost of, uh, of housing from out of the chancellor's budget. That was a good thing. And I would say, John, I would say this, the best outcome, my, my view, as a historian, not as a participant, would be a yes vote, but with a strong minority uh, that wanted more. And here's the reason. Back in the 1940s, when the UAW was the largest and most progressive union in the country, it went from victory to victory with a divided membership, because each each side prodded the other forward. And if that's the situation we have here, that's to the good, and I, I think there's good evidence that that's actually happened in the last month and a half. The the minority or the militant minority, they aren't that small minority, but they're they're there. They, and they have votes on the bargaining team. They prodded the majority to be more aggressive than would have been. So that's what I expect as an outside observer. I've I've been criticized by some for even having an opinion. You're a faculty member, you you know, stay keep your nose out of what the TAs are doing. <laughs> but I do want to say that I think the faculty has a big very big stake in this. Yeah.
0: yeah. One of my mentors, labor historian David Montgomery, always said the day after the strike is extremely important. And what he meant was if the workers feel the settlement was a good one and that the strike was worth it, then the union comes out stronger and can prepare for the next strike, which in this case will be in three years, and that's a reason to vote yes in this case. I wonder what you think about that view of things.
2: Well, I mean, yes, I, I think that's true. That that you want to, you, you, I mean, you don't want to be phony about it. But I think there's very good, a, a great deal of, uh, of support uh, uh, evidence for saying yes. This is a victory. We didn't get everything we wanted, uh, uh, and we and and we and we only have to wait two and a half, well, really two years, because you know, or less, to prepare for the next round. And let me say, here was a victory, uh, which is maybe now obscure. Originally, UC wanted like five years, a five-year contract, or four or five, which is a long time, and who knows what's going to happen. And the the union uh, insisted on a much shorter one. So really, it's only two and a half years before we begin another cycle. I mean, now in the life of a grad student, maybe that's half their experience here. But nevertheless, that's relatively short in terms of what we think of as American uh, industrial relations. Nelson, any final thoughts? Yes, it's very possible that this... I think victory is, is the word that should describe this this uh, strike and its outcome. Will have a dramatic impact around the country, uh, not just in academia, but among all sorts of, of low wage and you know people, some college educated, some not, who say, look, if we don't have to settle for ten percent or eight percent or something. We can get fifty percent. We can really change our lives by joining a union, going on strike, and and you know making demands. I think that's important.
0: Nelson Liechtenstein labor historian and activist. Nelson, thanks for helping us understand things today. You're welcome. This is our Christmas show, and now it's time for our special Christmas music feature. Our guest is Sean Walentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. He's written many books, including The Age of Reagan. It's out now in paperback. We turn to him today to help us understand what the heck is going on with the new Bob Dylan Christmas album. We reached him today in Princeton. Sean, welcome back to the program.
3: Uh, Great to be back, Sean.
0: Well, I want to start by listening to track one, Here Comes Santa Claus. It's a Gene Autry song, which I have to say is one of the most irritating holiday songs ever written, (laughs) even before Bob Dylan sang it.
4: Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ran right down Santa Claus Lane. Bixen and Bixen and oldest reindeer yeah, pulling on the race. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stock and say your prayers,
0: cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Hang your stock and say your prayers, Sean. What is this? Is this a joke of some kind?
3: No, it's not a joke at all, although, you know. You could turn it into one by imagining that the person who's really singing is Vincent Price. (laughs) It gives a certain macabre uh, Mm. aspect to the song. So you can look at it that way. You can look at a Bob Dylan song any way you want. But no, no, no. This is all very, very straight. Um, This is Bob Dylan in in, in many ways um, looking back to his own childhood. And uh, he's singing the songs that he heard as a kid in Hibbing. Uh, where everybody you know listened to Christmas music, whether you were Jewish or not, um, and he's recalling those times and those songs in that spirit.
0: Uh, and I understand that uh, that the album itself is a uh, benefit, and uh, that the royalties are all being donated to charity
3: in perpetuity. That's right. Um, all of them it's going to go. The royalties are going to feed America in the United States, and I think that there are some. Um, there's a group in the UK, and there's another group to you know to feed the homeless. You know, basically, this is uh, Bob Dylan in some ways um, being the character Pretty Boy Floyd from the old Woody Guthrie song. He's, you know, um, providing Christmas dinner to the families on relief. <laughs> it's just that he's not sticking up a bank. He's sticking up his own fans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's listen to another one. Um, I'll be home for Christmas. I have to say, when Bob Dylan sings I'll be home for Christmas, you have to wonder, is this a promise or is this a threat? <laughs>
4: I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow and mistletoe And presents on a tree Christmas Eve will find me Where the love light bleeds
0: Bob Dylan, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, sounds like a reason to bolt your doors, Sean.
3: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's hard to say what home is for Bob Dylan, because he's on his bus so much of the time when he's not getting arrested, that, you know, being home for Christmas is a big deal for him, because, uh, you know, he's not on his bus. But, you know, this is part of what the album's about. That's a song that was originally recorded by Bing Crosby, as were, I think, 13 of the 15 songs on this album. It's a sort of his tribute to Bing Crosby, among other things. But um, in 1943, remember, Christmas songs during World War II had a whole different meaning. I mean, they were very, uh, it was very touching, actually, very moving. It was one of the, th- it, was, it was the music, actually, that kind of held people together, uh, wondering whether their boys, and in some cases, girls overseas, would ever come home alive ever. Um, so, you know, this is a very moving song. It was moving in the 40s, and then after the war, Christmas music became a kind of way to uh, assert with some uh, aggressiveness to, to assert a kind of normality, which people hadn't felt, a lot of people in America hadn't felt uh, since the beginning of the Depression back in 19, you know, back in the early 30s. So he's, he's, he's trying to recapture that, in part, recapture that mood, which is bigger than Christmas, uh, bigger than Christmas in America. It has to do with a specific time and a specific place. And uh, it's also, as I say, a sort of tribute to Bing Crosby. He doesn't have Bing Crosby's voice. But he's copying Bing Crosby's phrasing, and I know he admires Bing Crosby's phrasing. So uh, that's his chance to do that too.
0: Well, let's listen to another one. Uh, maybe you want to you want to say anything about this one? Must be Santa. This one includes our own David Hidalgo, uh, the the uh, great uh, East L.A. Uh, musician, who's a big favorite of ours here.
3: Indeed, Los Lobos. He's yeah. the man. He's maybe the most gifted, one of the most gifted musicians that Dylan's ever worked with. Um, um, a Must Be Santa is my favorite song on the album. It's a polka song. It's basically ripped off from a Texas, the arrangement of a Texas uh, rock polka band, um, and but it also recalls again his Christmas time because it recalls the great polka bands of the Midwest of the 1940s and 1950s. People like, um, you know, Whoopi John Wilfart, um, his real name, Frank Yankovic. Would
0: you please spell the last name of Whoopi John Wilfart, (laughs) please?
3: W-I-L-F-A-H-R-T.
0: Now, are you Um, sure that this is not one of Bob Dylan's many pseudonyms?
3: Like Roosevelt Gook, <laughs> and, no, no, I have a photograph of Whoopi John Wilford at the Minneapolis Airport, taken at about the same time, about 1948, with his band. And I, and I happen to know a lot about Whoopi John. He, uh, he was quite a character. When he died, it turned out there was he left money in most of the, the hotels of the Midwest, um, stashed away, of, uh, lots and lots of money, and uh, um, basically hiding it from the Feds. And he lived lived quite a wild life, um, as you might imagine. By a man named Whoopi John. <laughs> well, let's, Which let's I would never call you John. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you for that. Sean Willens, the official historian of the official Bobdillon.com website from the Bob Dylan Christmas album. Let's listen to Must Be Santa featuring uh, David Hidalgo of Los Lobos.
4: That's long and white. Santa beard that's long and white. Who comes round on special night? Santa comes round on special night. Special night. Beard that's white. Must be Santa. Must be Santa. Must be Santa. Santa. Who has boots and suit of red? Santa was boots and suit of red. Who has a long cap on his head? Santa was a long cap on his head. Cap on his suit of red. Special night. Beard that's white.
0: Santa, Santa Long Oh, they're dancing in the corridors here at KPFK. <laughs> Must be Santa, Bob Dylan with David Hidalgo from the Dylan. I'm, dan- I'm dancing here in Princeton. <laughs> L- uh, let's listen to uh, another one. Here's Bob Dylan's Winter Wonderland. Wonderland, winter wonderland.
4: Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight, walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away is a blue bluebird. In his place is a new bird. He sings a love song. And No man. Then pretend that he is passing brown He'll say, "Are you married?" We'll say, "No man." But you can do the job when you're in town. Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire to face unafraid the plans that we made
0: walking in a window. On Bob Dylan. He sounds like your grizzled old uncle who's had a little too much of the spiked eggnog
3: at the family <laughs> gathering. I I think that's the point, actually. Actually, uh, there's the wonder bread singers, you know, the the, the whitest <laughs> white bread singers I've ever heard. Of. But you also listen closely, and you hear Donnie Heron on the on the pedal yeah. steel. I think it's the first time that Winter Wonderland's been done, at least in recent memory, uh, with a pedal steel guitar. Dylan adds always a touch. There are touches of of uh, of the current Bob Dylan, along with the Bob Dylan. What Bob Dylan was hearing when he was seven years old.
0: You know, this this whole uh, project made me think of Dylan's uh, radio program on uh, XM and Sirius Satellite, where uh, we see what a a connoisseur and scholar Bob Dylan is of these pre uh, pre rock, earlier twentieth century genres. In a way, this is part of that project.
3: Very much so, except the difference is. I mean, this could be a show from that series called Christmas. But the difference is that he sings all the songs. Yeah, uh, he doesn't just introduce them. But in fact, one of the songs, what must be Santa, actually did appear in the. Um, I forget the name of the, of the band, but uh, anyway, on on his Christmas show from from XM, you know, Cirrus XM. So, yes, there is a similarity. He knows a lot about it. He wants to. You know, this is an active archival, uh, You know, it's, he's an archivist among other things, and um, this this album is an example of that.
0: Uh, let's listen to another one. Of course he has to do Old Little Town of Bethlehem.
4: Old oh, Little Town of Bethlehem How still we see Dreamlessly, the silent stars go by. Yet in that dark street, shine in everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years i met. Tonight.
0: Bob Dylan's little town of Bethlehem I can only say there must be some way out of here.
3: <laughs> this is not one of my favorite cuts on the album <laughs> um there 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 are others that are better um uh a little town of Bethlehem. Not his best performance. Either. Well, you know, some we. Of the songs, some of, well, some of the songs just don't. I mean, Christmas produced a lot of interesting, wonderful music, which is why so many people cut Christmas albums. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody from, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra to uh, Ray Charles to uh, Barbara Streisand. I mean, even the Jews cut Christmas albums, right? Uh, Neil Diamond has a new one, even, the second one. Um, so there's a songbook, a real songbook. But some of the songs are very difficult. This is one of them, actually. And uh, the Christmas song, the famous Mel Torme song, is also you need a real range to sing those songs well. And I'm afraid that this doesn't quite do it. At least not for me.
0: We're speaking with Sean Walensky, the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website, bobdylan.com. One thing that strikes me about this this uh, music that's so puzzling, so confusing, so troubling to the uh, Bob Dylan's uh, um, classic Band-Date. music. Yeah. Bob has always. Uh, made a practice of pulling the rug out from under fans who thought they had him pegged. Right. He spent a lot of his career refusing to fulfill his fans' wishes. Right. And this is certainly part of that.
3: Uh, you can see it that way. I mean, the other thing is this is a cover album, right? I mean, these are all cover songs. There's not a single Bob Dylan song on here that he wrote. Um, and whenever Bob Dylan does a cover album, um, it usually means that there's a change... There's a change going to come. <laughs> um, he did self portrait, which got roundly panned, especially by I don't know if I can say this on the air, but you'll, you'll remember Guel Marcus's famous first line of his review in Rolling Stone of that album, which is "What is this blank?" Um,
0: what is this crap? But not quite crap.
3: Not quite that, yeah. And then he, you know, and and then he went on to do you know Blood on the Tracks.
0: Right? Yeah.
3: Um, then he did the cover albums in uh, the early '90s. You know, the two folk acoustic albums, uh, "Good as I've Been to You" and "World Gone Wrong." And the next thing, he comes out with is time out of mind, which is a whole different thing. Yeah. So who knows what's going to come? Here's here's another cover-up. So it's, it's 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 Bob Dylan trying to trying to and I actually kind of mean this. It's him plumbing his depths. He's trying to find something. He's trying to locate something in his soul, in himself, in his music. And this is the way he does it by singing other people's songs, singing a whole album of other people's songs. Um, so so it's interesting for that. You have to watch out for that. The second thing is. This is the first time he's done a Christian album since Shot of Love. In other words, this is a spiritual record. This is about his beliefs. I mean, you know, he's 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 he's, he's a Christian, of a of a very weird kind. So. You have to see in that context too. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which Dylan is, and that also disappointed his fans. By the way, you know, when he went gospel, people thought
0: just dis- disappointed out. is putting it mildly.
3: Yeah, people went nuts. Um, although I think that in retrospect, if you go back and listen to some of those albums, not not all of them, not Saved, but but if you listen to Shot of Love again, you will be very surprised. There's a lot of really good music on well,
0: there Well, gotta gotta serve somebody. Uh, in retrospect, does have some some strengths.
3: Uh, slow train coming, absolutely. And but go back and listen to Shot of Love sometime. You'll you know the song about Lenny Bruce. Um, uh, it, it's him kind of being semi-secular. Um, but anyway, my point is only that Bob Dylan is doing a lot of different things a, a, a at the same time, and he's doing a lot of different things at the same time in this album. It just sounds so schmaltzy and innocuous, but nothing with Bob Dylan, even at, at its most schmaltzy, is, is to be taken completely at face value.
0: Well, I think we've got time for one more. Let's listen to, from the Bob Dylan Christmas album, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas.
4: Golden days of your Faithful friends who are dear to us Will be near to us once more
0: Faithful friends who are dear to us Uh, Sean Wallance, I don't know You can say, uh, you know, this isn't singing, it's croaking but you know when Tom Waits croaks, a lot of people think it's great. Or when Louis Louis Armstrong sings this song, and he, you know, he doesn't have a beautiful voice either in the classic Absolutely. sense. Absolutely,
3: I don't. Know, I don't know what the complaining's about. I really don't. It's <laughs> the same voice that sang, you know, "Love and Theft," and the, you know, I, I, I don't quite get it. It's that I think it has more to do that you're not you used to hearing these songs sung by Nat King Cole, yeah, by you know someone with or Mel Torme, someone with a very smooth voice. Um, so. It, Bob Dylan is certainly adding a new dimension to Christmas <laughs> that we didn't hear before. Um, but it's a voice that is instantly recognizable, you know, much as, say, Louis Armstrong's was. You know, when you hear those voices, it takes you two, se- two nanoseconds, you know who you're listening to. Yeah. And um, so immediately that conjures up a whole series of associations. And then it's not just the voice, which at times falters. It doesn't hit the notes it's, you know, on that, on, that, on that track in particular. But again, it's about the phrasing. Listen to how he's parsing out his words. Listen to how he's doing that with the music. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a very um, much more complicated record than, than people uh, would think about because he's taking all that seriously. Maybe more seriously now than anyone else because this song has been sung by a million other people. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan... When he sings, you know, I don't know, um, um, Summer Days or any of the songs that he's done recently, he's the only person who does those. Maybe Sheryl Crow will do them, too, but very few anymore, right? It's not like Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's his song. Now he has to go up against the entire galaxy of American singers going back to, you know, Eddie Cantor and before. So he has to add something new to a tradition, and that's part of what's going on here, too.
0: Sean Wilentz is the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. Sean, thank you for helping us understand.
3: <laughs> thank you, John. It's always a pleasure.
0: We spoke with Sean Walentz about Bob Dylan's Christmas album in December 2009.